Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Happy Wednesday afternoon to you. Uh, we're going to be talking about a very fundamental topic today. Is the Bible the Word of God? And um, with me as usual, Joe Works in Fairlawn, New Jersey, and Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I got it right. I got it right. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Hey, Jeff, Joe. How are you guys today? Good afternoon, guys. All right, so let's get into this. The, the topic is so fundamental. Um, if we don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, we're not going to be compelled to live by it scrupulously. If we do be, believe it's the Word of God, then we are. Um, so let's just start out with the idea that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Uh, I think that that's a, a good beginning point. If the Bible makes the claim, then that puts things... Uh, it, it kind of gives us a choice. We, we don't just have some interesting, good writings from ancient times. We have something that purports to be a revelation from our Creator. So that means it e either is a revelation from our Creator, or it's crackpots who thought that God talked to them. Um, and so let's take a look at that. Uh, is, did the Bible claim to be the Word of God? When we say the Bible, we're, we're actually talking about the writings of some 40 different people. In our Bibles, we have some 60 different books. Um, so we're really talking about a claim, various books of the Bible. Does, does the Bible claim to be the Word of God? Where would you like to start there, guys? Does the Bible claim to be the Word of God? Well, there are certainly numerous times where those who are speaking in the Scriptures will say, thus says the Lord, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of times uh, that statement is made. Especially in the Old Testament, uh, different times that the prophets are coming to talk to God's people, they say, thus says the Lord God. I know Haggai is one of those minor prophets that I think 24 out of the 38 verses in the book it is, he says, thus says the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. Yeah, I did a quick Google search, not a Google search. I did a quick search in Bible, at BibleGateway.com using the American Standard Version. I just searched for the, the phrase, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, I guess, and have 140 hits. Uh, just some of them, they go like this. There, thus says the Lord, Jehovah of hosts, go get thee unto this treasure, even unto Shebna, who is over the house, and say. That's Isaiah twenty two fifteen. Skipping down, there's a whole bunch of them in Isaiah, but in Jeremiah, Therefore, thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Behold, mine anger and my wrath shall be poured out upon this place. In Ezekiel, uh, thus saith the Lord Jehovah, This is Jerusalem, I have set her in the midst of the nations. So think about that. You've got a man, either Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, in the cases that I just alluded to, and he is writing something, and he says, Thus says the Lord so suppose somebody is in conversation with you today, and he says to you, uh, Chase, you need to uh, quit driving your car. Thus says the Lord. Um, that kind of gets your attention. You, you'd say, what, what right do you have to say the Lord says that? But that's the claim these writers were making. Yeah, and it's a really powerful thing. When anybody is claiming to be speaking the oracles of God, it should stop us in our tracks, and we should want to know more about that. We should want to know their credibility. We should want to know if it's true or not, because it has an impact on my life if it truly is the Word of God. So I, had, I, I know a guy who some years ago 
Um, we were having a conversation about the Bible. We were sitting his, in his living room, and I don't remember exactly what the, the specific topic was, but he got rather angry, and he started shouting and yelling at me. And he did this for a few seconds, and then he quieted down, and he said, now, I need to give you a little background. Uh, the guy had a, a small following, kind of a little cult. He had his wife and a couple of other women that were his followers, and he had had an ongoing uh, vendetta against the local news media, specifically against the, the local newspaper and uh, one of the TV stations, and particularly one of the anchors at one of the TV stations. And um, the publisher or the editor, I think it was the publisher, of the newspaper was found dead, a bicycle accident. They just found him one Sunday morning on the side of the road, falling on the road with his bicycle lying there. And so sometime not too long after this, I'm having this conversation with this fellow and he gets angry and he starts yelling at me. And then he gets quiet and he says, I just want you to know that wasn't me yelling at you. That was the Lord. When, when, the, when I get angry with somebody, meaning it's the Lord getting angry with them, things happen to them. Remember the publisher of the newspaper? <laughs> so, so here's somebody who's claiming that what he's saying is from the Lord. And my thought is this guy's a crackpot, but the writers of the old Testament were claiming that what they were saying was from the Lord. And the question to our viewers is, do we think they were crackpots? Either they were crackpots or what they were saying was from the Lord. And so what we want to challenge everyone to do this afternoon is consider, is it possible what they were saying was actually from God? Is there reason to believe that? Well, if we just take what was written and we believe that they actually said, thus says the Lord, then you also have uh, numerous of those, uh, numerous individuals that made that statement in the Bible performed miracles. Right. Right. So you get to, and that, and that's kind of the purpose of miracles. And I think a lot of people miss that, that miracles weren't just something they did just because it's a religious thing to do. Hebrews chapter two, let's turn over to Hebrews two. Um, the writer says here in verse three, how shall we escape if we, if we neglect so great a salvation, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard God also bearing witness with them, God bearing witness that what they were saying was from God, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. We have examples of this, don't we, where prophets, teachers uh, in Bible times would, would validate the fact that their word was from God by doing miracles? I think of somebody like Moses standing before Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who Jehovah is. Why would I let, the, why would I let you go? And so then Moses performs the miracles that God told him he could. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs that you do except God be with him. Jesus was a teacher. Is what he's teaching from God? Is he a teacher come from God? The, the miracles, the signs Jesus did validated that he was. He was speaking from God. Yeah, and also in Mark chapter 1, um, and 
early on in Jesus's ministry, we see a few people that were saying about Jesus's teaching that he was one having authority. Uh, and in verse 27 of Mark 1, they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So you had on top of him teaching with authority, he had authority from God to do these miracles. It was confirming these facts. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus throughout his whole ministry is accompanying his teaching with these miracles. I think of Philip going to Samaria in Acts the eighth chapter. And, and this is when the, the disciples first begin to spread out from Jerusalem. And he goes up there preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Of course, if you're preaching the kingdom, you're preaching the king. The kingdom has a king and the king is the Messiah, the the one who is expected to come, the Lord's anointed. Um, And so he goes up there proclaiming this good news, and people believe him, but they believe him because they saw him doing miracles. So this is Acts chapter 8, verse 6. Multitudes gave heed with one accord unto the things that were spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the the signs which he did. And then it goes on and, and describes those signs. So... Uh, let's put this to to our audience to to chime in here and uh, offer us comments, uh, send us questions by means of the Facebook comment section or um, using the the uh, Zoom app. But this question occurs to me, guys. Somebody's going to be thinking, okay, so we're asking, is the Bible inspired or is it just men saying what men thought? Now we're turning to the Bible and saying, well, the Bible says that men claimed it was inspired and the Bible says that they validated their claims by doing miracles. Doesn't that kind of beg the question, though? I mean, it, doesn't that assume the conclusion that, the, that we can believe the Bible's account of the miracles? And so is someone allowed to testify on their own behalf, I guess, is part of the question. Yeah, is someone allowed to testify on their own behalf? Is there reason that we can believe these claims that there were miracles done? I think one of the greatest reasons uh, would be because of the resurrection. Exactly. The greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus. And it seems to me that the very fact that we are sitting here 2,000 years later and we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus um, is an evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you may say, well, how so? For us to be sitting here talking about the resurrection of Jesus, that, that is happening because the gospel has spread throughout the world. Spread, We're halfway around the world, and it has persisted for 2,000 years. And it began to spread based upon the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. As you go through the book of Acts, um, you see Peter preaching, you see Paul preaching, and repeatedly, over and over, the fundamental claim they are making is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's why people should believe what they're saying. Now, you think about trying to start a religion, trying to start a religion based on the claim that somebody who was just recently killed has come back from the dead. Uh, who's somebody that recently died in, in popular culture that everybody knows about today? Somebody, Jeff, that Scott used a sort of a parallel a year or two ago was uh, David Koresh. Okay, so David Koresh, now he's been dead several years now, but okay, suppose we, and he had a little cult following. Right. And so now let's say we're going to start trying to make that religion spread through the world and we're going to base the claim that we should be followers of David Koresh, 
Koreshites, Koreshians, based on the claim that David Koresh is alive. Is that, gonna, is that religion going to spread throughout the world? Is it going to persist for the next 2,000 years? Are people halfway around the world going to be talking about this on some webcast 2,000 years from now? No, no books are going to be written. No books are going to be bought uh, based upon that claim unless there is just tremendous evidence in, the, in that time that people saw him, uh, that people talked with him, uh, that people knew that it was him beyond the shadow of a doubt. And that's what happened, of course, with the spread of the gospel. It, it wasn't just people saying Jesus was raised from the dead. It's people saying Jesus was raised from the dead, and I'm an eyewitness. And you can believe me because I do this miracle. And then the fact that people did believe them is impressive. And Paul, and go ahead, Chase. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I think sometimes I've been asked this question. I know you guys might have as well. What made Jesus' resurrection so different from so many of the others in the New Testament who were raised from the dead? Um, well, Jesus was a man that was going along his ministry predicting that this was going to happen right. and was very specific when it was going to happen. Right. And on top of that, there's all the you know many spiritual applications that come from Jesus' resurrection that is like none of the others. And so Jesus just wasn't an ordinary man being resurrected. He is the incarnate God in the flesh. Uh, his resurrection is different from all the others. All right. So viewers, uh, chime in with your comments by means of the Facebook, Facebook comment, comment section or uh, send your comments through the BibleQuest.tv. So uh, we be getting a little bit ahead of uh, the point there, but Chase's comment just now reminded me uh, that not only is Jesus' resurrection significant for those reasons, but it has always been a part of God's plan. It shows how from Genesis 3 on, God was revealing that this was going to happen. And that's one of the marvelous things about the validity of the Scriptures, is it, it, it is one story uh, with all of these threads showing God was working toward this great event. Yeah, so that's going to get to, and that to me is is really the most compelling thing for me personally, is that and the resurrection, is the idea that you look at this collection of writings written over a span of 1,500 years by some 40 different writers, and yet it forms a cohesive story that moves progressively toward the culmination in Jesus Christ with the writers who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus anticipating the culmination of the story um, when they're only contributing, you know, one little part of the story and they're contributing that hundreds of years before the culmination. That to me is compelling. And, and I do want to come back to that, but let's, first of all, let's just talk a little bit more about the claims in the Bible itself that it is the word of God. Look at Acts chapter four with me for a second. Actually, um, or, yeah, go ahead, Chase. While we're going there, I just wanted to make note, we did have a Facebook comment. Karen Gibbons says, God cannot lie, which, of course, is coming from Titus 1, uh, verse 2. And she makes a very valid point. You know, with the scriptures we have today, God cannot lie. And mm -hmm. so he gave us his inspired word, and he's not going to lie to us about what those are. Um, so that it is, a, I think, a, a very yeah. good point. Once we become convinced the Bible is the word of God and and then we say, well, maybe it's the Word of God, but maybe God's lying to us. Well, we see both the nature of God, who is clearly revealed as a benevolent God, a God who's gone to great lengths to save us from our sins, and he tells us he cannot lie. 
So we can then we can put our trust in him. Look at Acts chapter four. And this is um, this is when Peter and John have been arrested and then released, and they come to the disciples. And I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Being let go, they came to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And they, when they heard it, the disciples, when they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, you that did make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, did say, and then there's a quotation from Psalm 2, which apparently is written by David according to this quotation, but when they quote it, they say it's actually spoken by the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David. And this gets us to kind of the idea of what a prophet was in the Bible. Um, Maybe let's go back to Exodus for a little bit and just take a look at the idea of a prophet as it's illustrated in Moses and Aaron's relationship to Pharaoh. You guys familiar with that point? In of uh, maybe are you referring to the fact that uh, God was going to uh, have Moses be his spokesperson and Aaron would be the spokesperson for Moses? Yeah, yeah. And then and so the passage is first of all there are two passages we'll look at. First of all, uh, Exodus chapter four, and um, this is where Moses is still kind of hesitating. He's he's reluctant to take upon himself the task God has given him to go back to Israel and go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Um, And so God says in verse 15, you are to speak to him, meaning to Aaron, uh, and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him. So Moses is going to go with Aaron to the people and speak to the people. And Aaron is going to be Moses' mouth. And Mo- uh, I said that wrong. Aaron is going to be Moses' mouth. And Moses will be as God to Aaron. So then we come to Exodus chapter 7, and it says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So here is Aaron being the spokesperson for Moses, being a mouth for Moses, and thus he is a prophet. And and Moses in this relationship would be as God to Aaron. So what that tells us when God speaks through a prophet, the prophet is acting as a mouthpiece for God. We're talking about somebody speaking by inspiration. Yeah, verse two, you shall speak all that I command you. You know, they 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 were instructed, they were going to speak just what God had said don't want to get too far off on this, but just recently studying and thinking about the story of Balaam, uh, it seems as if his desire was not there, but as he opened his mouth, uh, he was was, uh, going to speak God's will there um, as a spokesperson, maybe reluctantly there, but... uh, 
Well, that's a good point because what it does, it, it says to us that even though we're talking about mouthpieces who are human beings and thus fallible, the word of God is reliable that comes through them so much so that even if the person himself doesn't understand what he's saying or maybe even doesn't have his heart fully in what he's saying, yeah. the word of God comes through. An, an example would be Peter on the day of Pentecost who said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will gift, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for to you is the promise and to your children and to them that are far off, which would mean whom? Gentiles. 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 And yet Peter himself didn't seem to understand that until we get to Acts chapter 10. Yeah. Not fully understand it. So God could speak through Peter and say things that Peter himself didn't fully grasp. Jeff, I think this is an excellent point you made in Exodus. I'd never thought about uh, these verses being, being good for talking about how God communicates his plan. And it ties into another comment we got from Karen. She said, it's so important for us to know and understand God's complete personality starting in the Old Testament. Because that's really true of the way God has sent uh, by his grace and used uh, messengers to send his word. And one that comes into mind when you look on the opposite end, uh, kind of like Peter, is Jonah. Somebody who clearly did not want to preach the word, (laughs) but had after some prodding, finally did. And even his message wasn't all that gracious. It was just, in 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Yeah. Well, those people ended up repenting because it wasn't Joe's, uh, Jonah's words that were going to change their hearts, but it was the word of God. That's right. It was God's word. And so there's a passage in First Peter talking about the Old Testament prophets generally, and it kind of underscores this point that you got to start it on, Joe, and what you're elaborating with there, Chase. First Peter chapter 1, and um, this, this passage I think is powerful. Verse 10, he's mentioned the salvation that we have ahead of us. And he says in verse 10, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. So pause there. There were prophets who prophesied of the coming Christ and the sufferings and the glory that would follow. And Isaiah comes to mind, and especially Isaiah 53 comes to mind. Peter is going to spend a good paragraph in in chapter 2 alluding to Isaiah 53 that describes the sufferings of the Christ 700 years before the Christ comes to the earth. But what this is saying is those prophets who prophesied those things, they they were wondering, When is this going to happen? What's this all about? Verse 12, to whom it was revealed, to these prophets, here's what was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things, which now have been announced unto you through, through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, which things angels desired to look into. So angels didn't even understand what the prophets were talking about. It was revealed to the prophets that what they were saying was even more beneficial for some future people than it was for them. And so the prophets knew that they didn't know what it was all about, but they wrote it by inspiration. And then in a future generation, when the Christ comes into the world, then again, the Holy Spirit is sent forth from heaven and announces the realization of the things the Old Testament prophets had been saying. You know what all of that's about? All of that's about inspiration. 
Yeah, excellent point. You can see uh, some of Daniel's prophecies, and at the end of receiving them, you know, he's fainting, he's confused, he doesn't understand what it's about, um, but it's pointing to this future time. Um, it is beyond the men who, who wrote it. There's another passage in Hebrews um, that, that alludes, that, that is interesting. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. And um, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 8. No, I'm going to go to Hebrews 10. Um, so he's quoting from Jeremiah the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah 31. And I'll just start in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he has said, and then there's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and upon their mind also I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Who says it? He says the Holy Spirit says it. But he's quoting something that a man wrote, Jeremiah wrote. He says the Holy Spirit said it. Yeah. And the Hebrew writer does that time and time again. He does it again in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, and he's quoting from Psalm 95, but he says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3. Mm-hmm. I looked at the wrong. Uh, Hebrews 3 in verse 7, therefore just as the Holy Spirit says, mm-hmm. hear his voice. And so mm-hmm. although that these, these writings are from men, men have put the pen to the parchment, the Hebrew writer still recognizes this as being the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So now these passages are talking about the Old Testament scriptures, and the word translated scripture is, is really just the word writing. And there were a lot of writings in ancient times that were not inspired. But in the Bible, consistently, when it talks about the writings, it's talking about the writings that were understood to be from God. That's the way the term gets used um, in the Bible. And that kind of language is used with reference to New Testament writings as well. Uh, Luke 10, turn over to Luke 10. Jesus is sending out the 70. And um, in Luke 10, verse 7, he's telling them, uh, when you come to a city, if somebody receives you and they're going to provide for your needs, they're going to put you up, show hospitality to you, give you room and board. Accept that. He says, verse 7, In that house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Then we turn over to 1 Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's talking about elders, overseers in a congregation, uh, who could be paid, supported financially, And he says in verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in teaching. And then he gives a a reason for that. He says, for the scripture, there's this expression, the scripture, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. He's quoting from the Old Testament there, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Then he gives another scripture. He says, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn, and, and then what does he quote? Quotes Jesus. He quotes Jesus in Luke chapter 10. The labor is worthy of his hire. Um, so it looks like here, Paul puts Luke in the same category, namely being scripture, 
as the Old Testament writings. Another thing that really, I think, complements that well, Peter in his second epistle, uh, 2 Peter 3, in verse 14, starting, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, and they do also the rest of the scriptures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Their own destruction. Mm-hmm. So Peter is readily admitting, and I've always liked this, that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and I think we can all attest to that, especially when you look at ones like Romans and some of these others. But Peter refers to Paul's letters as scriptures, just like the rest of the scriptures. Right, right, right. And then, of course, it's Peter also in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 who talks about uh, the revelation from of God's will to man by means of the Holy Spirit. Peter is talking about the things that were taught concerning Jesus. They were not just fables, cunningly devised fables, is, is how the wording is in the translation I have here. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. And then the first thing that he mentions is we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' glory, and he talks about the transfiguration and how Peter, James, and and John were there and witnessed the transfiguration and heard the voice come out of heaven. And then he goes on and he says in verse uh, 19, we have the word of prophecy made more sure Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. So there was the prophecy that pointed to Christ. And when Peter and John and James saw Jesus transfigured, they had that word of prophecy made more sure. They've seen with their own eyes this transfiguration. And now he's saying that's what we're proclaiming to you. Verse 20, knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. Prophecy here, remember, doesn't just mean telling the future. It means being a mouth for God. It means speaking God's word. And when we're reading scripture, we're reading prophecy, God's message coming through the prophet, know that it's not a private interpretation. The man is not just sitting down and writing his own interpretation of what that vision that he saw meant. He's not sitting there going, that was... That was a pretty cool vision I just saw. You know, I just think what that means is God just wants us all to be happy. Now, he wasn't writing his own private interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God being moved by the Holy Spirit. All right. Do we have any comments from our viewers at this point that we need to go to? Chase, you're keeping up with the Facebook page. Thank you for doing that. Um, I don't, I don't see any so far. So if any of, if anyone's out there on Facebook and have any questions or comments, please just uh, send them our way. Hey, one comment that was made, uh, by Robin there on Facebook, um, uh, significant is that Jesus was resurrected never to die again. The others like Lazarus who were resurrected died the second time. And Drew had made a similar comment on zoom, uh, along that line, uh, the distinction between needing to listen to Jesus, as you'd pointed to at the beginning from Hebrews 2, there is something special. Even amongst the resurrections, it stands out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but fundamental, I think, to, to, that, to the point you were making earlier is the fact that 
Jesus was raised after claiming, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to go and be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. Um, you know, today, if somebody says, I'm going to be raised on the third day, and then he dies, uh, the third day is going to come and go, and he's not going to be raised, and what are we going to know about his claim that he was the Son of God? It's not true. We know it's not true. But if somebody says, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to be raised, and he's killed, and he lies in the grave for three days, and then he is raised from the dead, then you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and that's why Paul says in Romans, the first chapter, I think it's verse four, that he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Um, so, not an, exact, not an exact parallel, but you remember not too long ago, a man by the name of Harold Camping uh, made some uh, rather uh, astounding quote, prophecies uh, concerning the end of the world. And then that day came and went, and everybody saw that that was fraudulent. Yeah, which reminds us of, what is it, Jeremiah 28? Am I thinking the right passage? Where, you're on your own on that one. All right, so I'm going to turn to Jeremiah 28. This is the context where Hananiah is a false prophet. The people are going into captivity, and Hananiah says it's not going to last long. Yeah. Uh, we're coming right back out. And Jeremiah goes, okay, all right, yep, okay, now we'll find out if you're a prophet or not. And I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So let's go to Jeremiah 28. And uh, after Hananiah has made his boast, we're coming out of captivity right away. This is not going to last long. Verse 6, the prophet Jeremiah said, amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words, which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from, from Babylon to this place. Yet hear now this word, which I'm about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. And then Hananiah got upset at that. <laughs> and, and Hananiah's prophecy did not come true, and it became clear. In fact, Hananiah ended up dead shortly thereafter, so it became pretty clear he was not a prophet. Yeah, that, 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 more, uh, more parallels there to Harold Camping than I had remembered. The last verse there, he dies in the same year in the seventh month. Yeah. Was it, was it the same year in the seventh month with Harold Camping? It was the same year, uh, wasn't it? No, no not, no, I'm talking about with Hananiah. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah. Okay. All right, good. Um, well, now, one more thing I want to do before we spend, well, we don't have a whole lot of time left. We've got 10 minutes, but quickly, let's, let's talk about what Jesus said to the 12 apostles. Uh, here is Jesus on earth with the apostles, and we have a, an account of, what he says they can expect as they go about preaching. I'm thinking of both Matthew 10 and also what Jesus says the last night before he's crucified, John 14 through 16. Which one do you want to go to first? Uh, let's do them in uh, chronological, Matthew 10. All right. Matthew chapter 10, and we can come down to about verse... Uh, 16, where he says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then uh, verse 17, there's a warning about the circumstances in which they're going to find themselves, right? Right. Yeah, they could face persecution. Mm -hmm. and, and so what does Jesus tell them about how they're going to handle that? 
Well, they're not going to worry about it, verse 19, because the Holy Spirit that's going to uh, uh, guide them. Yeah, so they're not going to have to prepare an outline ahead of time as to what they're going to say, (laughs) (laughs) because they are going to be given what to say in that moment. This, again, gives us a little hint what we mean by inspiration. Um, Today, people will talk about, oh, that man is so inspired and maybe all they mean is he just feels something a whole lot. No, what we're talking about here is people who are going to be given a message from God. They're going to be mouthpieces for God. God is going to speak through them in that moment. Let's go over to John chapter 14, verses 15, uh, chapter, chapter 14, 15, and 16. Over the course of the hours, the night before Jesus was crucified, He says quite a bit about what the apostles could expect in terms of guidance from God. Guidance from the Holy Spirit, right? Starting in verse 25, John 14. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you while yet abiding with you, but the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. Uh, Sometimes people talk about how, best case scenario, the Gospels were written decades after Jesus uh, lived and died. And so they're saying that to kind of undermine the reliability of the accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I said to you. So they weren't on their own in trying to remember what Jesus had said, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they, they had divine help uh, in what they were going to be revealing. Of course, this is the words of eternal salvation. God is not going to leave it up to uh, uh, man's faulty memory. Uh, well, I think what God wanted us to do was uh, maybe uh, this with great certainty through the book of Acts because they had uh, the the guidance of the Spirit of the Father with them. Then John 15, go ahead, Chase, I'm sorry. I was going to say on a side note, uh, touching on what Joe said, in these early, um, in the early church, you see how much of a respect they had for the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Uh, They didn't like making decisions, or they wouldn't make decisions without a word from God. And you see that in Acts 15. And that's an interesting passage anyways, because I've, I've had conversations and studies with Catholics who go to Acts 15 to say that's where Peter is making a decision as a pope, when really Peter is confirming the word of God, along with Paul and Barnabas and James from Amos chapter 7. They're all going back to scripture and what the Holy Spirit had to say about the matter. Right. That's an excellent point. Just to remind our viewers, that's the context where there's a controversy that arises some years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the controversy is these Gentiles who are becoming Christians, do they have to keep the law? Do they have to be circumcised? In essence, do they have to convert to Judaism to be Christians? And they go to Jerusalem from whence the teaching had arisen that said, the Gentiles had to become Jews, had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. They go there, confront the people who are saying these things. Peter's, Peter's argument is to appeal to the signs that God had given on the occasion when Cornelius and his household were converted. He's appealing to revelation from God. Paul and Barnabas appeal to the signs God did amongst them when they were preaching amongst the Gentiles. 
Their appeal is to revelation from God. James, as you said, quotes Amos. His appeal is to revelation from God. And then everybody decides it's a good idea to write to the Gentiles and tell them, no, you don't have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. And it makes the point, I think it's down about verse 27, saying, and this seemed good to them and to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was endorsing this. That was by revelation. Yeah, very good. 28, verse 28. Verse 28. Okay, thank you. Going back to John, in John 15, when Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, is talking with the apostles, he says in John chapter 15, and um, looking at the wrong page, that's why it's not there. Verse uh, 26, and the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16 and verse 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he shall guide you into all the truth for he shall not speak from himself, but what things over he shall hear. These shall he speak and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. Similarly, Paul in first Corinthians, the second chapter then argues that he's not preaching the wisdom of men, but he is preaching what is revealed the mind of God revealed to man from the Spirit. So you have this thoroughgoing claim, Old Testament and New Testament, that what's being written in these books that we call the books of the Bible is from God. It's the Word of God. Now, that's the claim. And we've talked a little bit about why we can believe that it is the Word of God. Maybe let's finish out the last four minutes with, of the webcast today just talking about, okay, why is this credible that we would believe this? We've talked about the resurrection. We've talked about the miracles that were done. And Joe, you, you touched a little bit earlier on just the cohesiveness of the whole story. Yeah. And so just following that up, you know, it, it's not just that a writer has put together a marvelous story that, that has a happy ending. Uh, uh, there are approximately 40 different authors uh, over the span of hundreds and hundreds of years. What about 1500 years, give or take, I guess, yep. um, uh, that are, that are writing this. It all fits together. They quote one another uh, respectfully, recognizing, as you've already pointed out, both of you, uh, that as they are quoting other prophets, they are recognizing that those are words from God. There, there's also this, the selection of material that the oldest writers um, used. When you think about the, whoever wrote the book of Genesis, um, and I believe it was Moses, but I won't assume the conclusion. Let's just say whoever wrote the book of Genesis, why does he stick the story of Melchizedek in there? He's talking about Lot getting rescued after there was a battle between four kings and five kings, none of which were Melchizedek, and Abraham rescues Lot, and then he includes all these details about this character who's a king and a priest, Melchizedek, who shows up, and then we don't hear anything more about this Melchizedek, until we get to the book of Psalms, and there's a prediction that when the Christ comes, he's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then we come to the New Testament, and this turns out to be a very profound piece of our understanding of the kind of priest that Jesus Christ is. And so then you have to say, okay, why did the writer put that stuff about Melchizedek back there in Genesis, and then why, was, why, why do we not hear any more about it unless it was intended to be about the Christ who's going to be coming way off in the distant future. And there's several examples, many examples of that. You have the story of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, which you just have to say, why is that story even in there? 
Um, and even some of the details of it, why write it like that? Why, why say who, who it was that was carrying the wood? Why say go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice your son? If it was just a human writer telling the story, bizarre as it is, why mention that it was on a mountain in the land of Moriah, a word that is never used anywhere else in the Bible except one time where it's used to let us know that's Jerusalem, where Jesus, the Son of God, is sacrificed. Right. Well, uh, we could elaborate at length on that sort of thing, but what that sort of thing does is it says, you know, these writers who wrote the Bible, they chose what they wrote because it had significance with with uh, with a view toward the culmination of the whole story. And they described what they wrote in language that was especially fitting to where this whole story is going. And then you have to ask, how could they do that unless they're being guided by someone who knows where this story is going? And that's somebody who knows the future. And that can only be God, which is, to me, an evidence of inspiration. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today for the webcast. Uh, we're out of time, but Lord willing, we will see you in two weeks, not next week. We are all going to be busy teaching out of state. And so um, look for us back here two weeks from today. Thank you very much for being with us for Bible Quest today.